Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The creative force behind the genre-defying Chicago alt-rock band Wilco, Jeff Tweedy has recently released his first memoir, Let's Go, So We Can Go Back. Tweedy opens up about his creative process and the people and places that have shaped him. A musical explorer from his early years listening to siblings' records and playing in bands in high school, Tweedy formed the legendary country punk band Uncle Tupelo in 1987. And its first album, No Depression, is now considered a blueprint for alt country. Then came the worship-worthy Wilco and 25 years of collaboration, including with Billy Bragg, Mavis Staples and posthumously Woody Guthrie. Tweedy chats with Alex Bean and ends the session with musical performance. This event is supported by Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Toogood. We hope you enjoy it. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tato katoa. Uh, kia ora te whanau. welcome um, here this evening. And tēnā koe, welcome to you, Jeff. Thank you. Um, a round of applause for Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> I believe I'm supposed to open by introducing you to this crowd, Jeff, and I feel like I don't really need to. Oh. Go ahead, though. Well... Jeff writes songs, and he's pretty good at it. And he's done it for a few different bands, most prominently Wilco. Any Wilco fans? What do you know? All right. Any any Uncle Tupelo fans? Grammy Award winning. Grammy Award winning. Yeah, that's right, that's right. (laughs) I like it on the back of the book, man. What does it say? It's... uh, Jeff Tweedy is one of contemporary American music's most accomplished songwriters, musicians, and performers. That sums it up as well as I ever oh, could. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Has, have many people read the book? Yeah? yeah? Great. That's wonderful. Um, so we're here to celebrate um, Jeff's memoir, which is called Let's Go So We Can Get Back. My first question to you, Jeff, is, is when considering writing a memoir, you know, when the seed of writing a, 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 an autobiography, a memoir, is in your mind, there must be two questions that you face. One is, could I? Mm-hmm. And the other is, should I? Right. And, and I would imagine that you wrestled with the should I question quite a lot before you started writing, because on one hand, it seems like the most conceited thing to do, right? It's like, yeah. I want to write a book about my life and my ideas and my creative process and that'll mm. be interesting to everybody. Mm. And that's quite a difficult idea to come to terms with. But this is actually such a gift. Like, thank you for this book because oh, I you. learned so much. I'm sure that everybody out here as well felt the same. Oh, thank you. So, so what did you have to go through to convince yourself to write this? Um, I, it was really based on my conversations with my family Mm. and whether or not they thought it was a stupid thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like my kids in particular. Um, uh, Initially they were like, that's, you're too young to write an autobiography or a memoir. And and then I said, uh, but I might not get asked to do it again. Right. And they said, yeah, probably not. 
<laughs> wow, they're a really solid litmus <laughs> yeah. taste for you, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I thought, yeah, I'm not that optimistic about the future either, so. Wow. <laughs> and, and then once you've decided to do it, then you've got to work out how to do it, and writing a book is very different to the writing you've done previously in your life. It's the op I feel like it's the opposite of all of the writing I've ever done in my life, is mm. um, writing clear, easy to understand prose uh, is like the photo negative of writing impressionistic sort of as poetically aspiring lyrics that kind of skirt around the edges of a story. And mm. it's like all the stuff that I had to leave out uh, of the book is the stuff that I write songs with. Yeah. And so did that, did it take a while for you to get comfortable just being conversational and truthful and honest. Um, yeah, it did. I mean, in, initially, I really didn't have any confidence at all that I would be able to do it just sitting down and writing. So what I did initially was I sat down with a friend of mine that's a writer and recorded conversations yeah. and then transcribed them and tried to put them together in the shape of a book. Mm. And, and it didn't work very well. I mean, it kind of, the outline of the book was maybe from those conversations, but I really, I really overestimated my ability to, to, ability to speak in complete sentences. <laughs> it's like, I it's don't, funny, don't do it, it very often. I, I, that's a very human thing. I interview a lot of musicians on the radio and then you have to edit the interviews and, you were in the room with them, so you know what they meant, but actually their sentence just trails off, and it's all tone, and it's just like, ah? Uh-huh, exactly. It's not quite a, yeah, <clears throat> not a particularly good read. Yeah, so I was given about two years to write the book, mm. and, and I ended up writing it in about three months. <laughs> At the end of the, the two years, the publisher... The last three months? Yeah. You're that guy. Yeah, that, the publisher was sense. just like, mm, <laughs> we kind of meant what we said about when we went the book to come out. And like, yeah. yeah, deadline orientated. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really is a, a, um, a beautiful read. I really enjoyed it. Just to give the audience a, a, a vague outline for what we're going to do tonight, we'll chat for about 50 minutes and then we'll open up the, the floor to some questions from the audience, and then Jess going to perform some songs from us. Uh, yeah, right? Just, um, just, just a few. <laughs> Don't get too excited. <laughs> um, and I haven't really written too many questions down, man. I've just marked out a few passages in the book that I thought were wonderful, and I sort of wanted to, to maybe read and share and, and speak about. Okay. The first one I wanted to ask about is, is the, the, the first chapter, you know, when you're writing about your childhood and the Midwest. Mm -hmm. This is some of the most vivid writing for me because I've never been to the Midwest. I don't know what it's like. But you immersed me in that world. I understood what it was to be in a family of railroad workers. <laughs> was it really hard to look back on that time of your life and summarise it and, and put it down there in, in black and white? Uh, Honestly, the, the biggest hurdle for me was getting started, like getting over the, that initial impulse I had that I, that I wasn't going to be able to write prose. Um, but once I convinced myself that I could write prose and, and I, I could write it, you know, 
in an understandable, clear way. Uh, I really enjoyed that process, actually, because mm. writing is, is, is re remembering. Mm. And uh, the more I wrote, the more I remembered. And um, so it was really, really kind of joyous, honestly. I, I found it really satisfying. I'm glad it was joyous. I'm just going to open the book to the little bookmark I said here. It's labeled Sadness on Sadness. <laughs> You're speaking about your parents here. That was an alternate title for the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would have flown off the shelves, I'm telling you, Jeff. Yeah. I'll just read this part out. I think my dad genuinely loved my mum, and she loved him too, but maybe not as much. <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought that she wasn't getting what she needed emotionally from him, but in hindsight, it was probably the other way around. It was my dad who had no chance. She wasn't going to trust a man with her happiness, not after her father made it so abundantly clear what could happen to you when you trusted a man. She trusted me, but I was her perennial baby, fostered to be her bringer of happiness. But with her husband, they were roommates at best. She wasn't going to leave him, but she wasn't going to let him get too close either. Her life was sadness piled on sadness. That's a, that's a full-on... It must be quite confronting to look at your parents' relationship like that and then categorize it in a paragraph. <laughs> um, well, it's not the first time I've thought about it, you know, right. writing the book. It's, it's been a perplexing relationship to, to unpack mm. as a witness to it. Mm. Um, but like, you're very honest about those relationships in this book. You speak about your brother and, and you obviously love him, but you say some tough things about him, the same mm. about your dad. Yeah, I... Um, I, I don't know, I just, I feel, I'm glad that it comes through as being honest and, and um, I, do, I don't feel like it was a conscious effort to be honest, I just feel like there's, well first of all, I'm in recovery, I'm a person that has been, been really good at deceiving myself in my life, mm. and one of the ways that you stay healthy is to be honest with yourself, it becomes a habit, to, to be honest with yourself. Um, so, um, I don't, I don't know. I, if I think it's just a part of uh, how my feelings about the world manifest themselves in my recovery. Also, is like I think everybody's bullshitting all the time, and I think it's, I think it's, it's really a bad thing. Mm. I think everybody's really spending a lot of time tr pretending that things are better than they are, or that they're not. I don't know. They're not honest about their emotions, and and I don't think it does anybody any good. I think it make it. It's our vulnerabilities are actually one of the things I feel like we have the most in common. I'll yeah. take a round of applause for that. <laughs> that leads me to my favorite bit of the book. All right. Can I just go straight to that? Because this is the part. Sorry. I, I actually, I, I spoke to Jeff about this before we came out, and, and Jeff <laughs> isn't, isn't that keen to read it. Jeff, should we talk about the fact that you, you had to read this whole I, book? I, I had to read the audible version of the book, and, and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> it's, it's actually what my next book is about. <laughs> it's a memoir of reading my book. Yeah. Uh, I can write at a, like a 10th or 12th grade level, and I can only read out loud at a 4th grade level. It really, it really wigs me out. I was, there was a period when I was reading the book for the audible version where I couldn't say the word Wilco. 
for like a whole day. <laughs> Excuse me? You can, you can sing like an angel though. Oh. oh, well you haven't heard me sing yet. Uh, uh, so I'll be reading it out, but it's only a few Th- paragraphs thank and you. I apologize, I do appreciate the suggestion. I can, if we got another copy of the book, I could just move my mouth while he does it. <laughs> It's interesting because you were talking earlier about the confidence to, to write the book, and a lot of this book is about you finding your confidence. You, you've come from a, a place of shyness, and you're even shy about using your voice to read out now, out loud now, and yeah. 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 You've, you've come a long way, Jeff. <laughs> this is, yeah. This I'm going to read this really bit. I found, I found this really amazing. This is, this is how Jeff sees himself. I do not have a voice that I have a lot of comfort with sustaining. So when I started writing songs, I stayed away from melodies with sustained notes. It's one of the reasons, ah, oh, this is the wrong section. My bad. Uh, I was gonna say, that sounds like the wrong section. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> this, is, this is about vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I used to try out new songs on my mum. She was a tough audience, not because she was critical, if anything, she loved everything I wrote too much. But because the more re- real the song felt to me, the more the words got frozen in my throat. You don't need a crowd to find out if a song has worth. An audience doesn't have a consciousness, one person does. If it's one person who's sitting close to you, so close to you, you can see their eyes and hear their breathing, that's when it becomes as intimate as a conversation. You're confronted with what a song is capable of. It really has to work on one person at a time. If you feel exposed when you're singing to someone and each word gives you a distinct terrifying thrill resembling embarrassment, that means you're doing something right. And that's what made me feel like I could be a songwriter. It's not about being able to write the perfect lyrics or a melody that will crawl up inside a listener's head and never leave. It was realizing that I'm okay with being vulnerable. I don't care. My comfort level with being vulnerable is probably my superpower. <laughs> this, I was literally cheering when I read this out of the book. I was like, yeah! I'm, I'm tearing up just listening to you read that. Like, <laughs> uh, this is the bit that'll tear everyone up. I wasn't the cool kid. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the one you could depend on if things went wrong. I wasn't the smartest person. I wasn't the one you turned to if you had a question. I wasn't ruggedly handsome or boyishly charming. I wasn't the captain of the football team or the kid everybody in school voted was most likely to succeed. I was the guy who could burst into tears in front of his peers and not care what they thought. I had a bone-crushing earnestness, a weaponized sincerity, and I was learning how to put all of those feelings into songs. Now that may not sound like a superpower, but when I discovered it, it was not any less remarkable than Peter Parker realizing he could walk on walls. That was the moment of reckoning. I was different. I had something to offer. I was impervious to my peers' shame. They couldn't make me recoil with their snickering or judgment sneers. I'd sung these same songs to my mother. If in the quiet of our kitchen, and if I could open up to her and not be destroyed by a disapproving arch of an eyebrow, what could a crowd of strangers possibly do? (laughs) 
I'm, am I blushing? I'm blushing. And then you found that superpower, and that is so remarkable to me that you found that at that young age and you embraced it and you went, okay, I'm unafraid to pour my heart and soul into these songs and, and bear yourself night after night. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean write, when writing it out like that uh, makes it sound like I've got it all figured out. <laughs> and I think that that part of me was figured out pretty early on. Yeah. But I definitely still struggle with feeling... Uh, like I don't belong at a writer's conference, or <laughs> for example. Um, you know. Uh, You're too shy to read your book out loud. <laughs> things, yeah, things get hard. Yeah. Things get hard occasionally, you know, but, yeah. but, but sharing songs and singing to people, um, oddly enough, has always been a, a conflict free zone <laughs> or something, you know, like mm. a part of my, an area in my life where. I was able to go and not feel as, uh, I don't know, as, 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 as oddly enough, not as vulnerable as, as I, when I'm not sharing my vulnerabilities. And, and yet, the way you describe learning music for the first time in this book, you, it's, it's strange to me that you were convinced of that within yourself, because even... Even in the book, you're, you're like, I was convinced that that's what I was going to be. I couldn't quite play guitar yet, though. <laughs> you know, you were convinced of that before you'd taught yourself to play guitar, <clears throat> which is odd, no? Yeah, it is pretty strange, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I remember one of the first times I ever played in front of people, I really did not know how to play the guitar at all, but I was in a band with Jay Farrar from Uncle Tupelo and his brothers, I wasn't really in the band, but they kind of tolerated me mm. bringing my guitar amp and my guitar mm. <laughs> to where they were playing. And I got up on stage and, um, and I was jumping around having, it was just felt completely natural to me in a weird way. Uh, and Jay's brother kept reaching down and turning my amp off. <laughs> <laughs> And, not and, so I, and at some song. point, I just stopped turning it back on. Right. But I didn't leave the stage. <laughs> right. It's quite remarkable to me that you, you, you started to learn guitar and then you, you gave up. You didn't like it at all. and You didn't like your guitar. You didn't like the teaching method. So you were a few false starts there for you. Yeah, it was... It was um, it's, it's how I saw myself, even as, as really, really young, as a, as, a, as a person that knows how to play the guitar. And, and the guitar that I was given to start learning guitar on was virtually unplayable. I really c convinced that it wasn't just me. It was, it was a really daunting piece of crap. You know. A workman never blames his tools, I believe, is an expression. Uh, I think I say that in yeah, my book. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you really no. are blaming the tool on this one. Yeah, but you should at least, you know, have a hammer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it didn't stop me from thinking that that's, that's who I am. So, mm. I mean, I, I would... See, catch the guitar in the corner of my eye in my room all of the time 
when I was growing up after this failure of not being able to learn how to play it. Mm. And it would always, you know, something in me would go, that's, that's something you have to do at some point. You have to figure that out. And so you taught yourself guitar and to write songs and, and, and now you produce Mavis Staples records. <laughs> you know, you, it, whoa, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Uh, th- that must be a moment for you where you must have a moment where you're in the studio with Mavis Staples and you're like, oh, I can barely even play guitar. I'm a bit of a... You must have a fraudulent moment at that point in time, right? Uh, actually, that's... Yeah, that's one of the things I think everybody shares is like the, yeah. the feeling of being a fraud. Yeah. 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 I, but uh, I... I don't know. I, honestly, with Mavis, though, she's so good at making everybody else in the room feel better. Mm. Um that I don't know if I I don't know if I felt that way with her. Uh, she's she's like what I would imagine uh, if I got to pick what an angel was, it'd be it would be Mavis, <laughs> and then by, because she doesn't have to have wings or fly or anything like that. But I would picture an angel being something that would come into a room and all of a sudden everybody felt a little bit better about who they are, and and uh, um, a little bit more loved. You know, Mavis does that to every room she walks into. Must have been magical to work on those records and, and then to end up, without spoiling too much in the book, you end up carrying messages between Mavis Staples and Bob Dylan <laughs> about, about marriage. Yeah. Which must be odd. Yeah. Um, we did some touring with Bob Dylan. It was, it was kind of pitched to us like we were going to be uh, it's going to be a Rolling Thunder review where we're going to be jamming together every night. And uh, I was like, that's not going to happen. Uh, and it didn't happen. But we did get up, I did get up to sing with him on, on stage a few nights, um, wow. myself and Jim James, and I think different Ryan Bingham, some other people that were a part of this tour. And the, I think the second night we did that, we got up and, we got up and sang The Weight by the band with with Bob Dylan, but every night it was in a different key that they didn't tell us until <laughs> we walked on stage. Uh, and I was playing guitar. It was, it was like it was like it's an A flat. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he likes the black keys on the piano. Never mind. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm I'm leaving the stage and he yells over at me. He said, "You gotta tell tell Mavis she should have married me." And so I did, and Mavis told me to tell him that she's still available. (laughs) (laughs) Playing Cupid between musical heroes. Yeah. Uh, You must have to pinch yourself occasionally. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about lyrics, and how many people have had a a Wilco song and and the lyrics in it mean so much to you? You know, really strike a chord in your heart. It's helped you. Anybody got married to a Wilco song? Had a Wilco song at their wedding? Yeah, a few people. <laughs> Wilco song helped you get over the loss of a loved one. And then I read through the book, and I realized that you're writing lyrics by writing down random syllables <laughs> and seeing which ones sound nice together. <laughs> Devastating for me. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I should have put a... a, a a warning sticker on the book that it was going to be disillusioning. <laughs> this could ruin one of your favorite albums. Yeah. No, I, but I, I suppose, um, you know, because you spoke about how lyrics, you, 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 you 
you want them to be abstract, you want them to have meaning though, you want them to paint a picture but not necessarily spell everything out for you. And so I'm assuming you would use techniques like this to stimulate ideas. It seems very clever to me. Oh, I, when, I'm, when I'm in charge, when my ego is in charge, everything feels heavy and grounded and, and um, it doesn't it doesn't soar, it doesn't have any lightness or feeling that it, it could, I don't know, it could reach me if I was listening to it, uh, if someone else had written it. When I'm, when I'm really in my head and, and thinking like, oh, I'm gonna be clever, I'm gonna write this, I'm gonna write exact, I know exactly what I'm gonna tell people and I know exactly what I wanna say, I'm gonna write it down. It always feels like, um, like I, I don't know, like, it feels like lead. It just has no, mm. no lightness to me. So over the years, the, the main thing I really want to do is to not be um, present for, for a lot of it, as much of it as I can be, be away from. And so one of the ways that I do that is to do exercises where I, I'm just doing a process that I don't have to, I don't have to inject my ego or my you know, my cleverness or my thoughts. And, and ultimately, what I'm just trying to collect is enough things that I feel, but I know I didn't, um, I didn't put there because it was gonna make me look good. Mm. I don't know, I explain it better in the book, I think, but. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, you do, and it's amazing, because you can still, you can. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. It's, it's really clever, though, Jeff, because you can give away your whole process, and it's cool because no one could copy it. Oh, you I know? Well, no, I think everybody could copy it, but they would all come up with different songs. That's what I mean, yeah, yeah. and perhaps something not, not so good. You have mentioned that, that on your, your last two, so, the solo records, Warm and Warmer, that you feel that you're lyrically approaching things differently, that you're being much more direct. Well, all the lyrics on the, the two solo records I put out are, were written around the same time I was finishing the book. Mm. And so I kind of forced my myself to stay in this frame of mind where I wanted to be able to tell somebody exactly what the song was about. Mm. Because I was trying to write really clear and understandable conversational prose. Mm. And um, uh, it just... It felt dangerous to me to try and get back into some uh, world of abstraction and, and, mm. and impressionism or something. Mm. So it was, I think it was good. It really taught me a lot. I was, it basically took like two or three more revisions of each set of lyrics to get to something that was more crystallized and, and understandable. Um, and I don't really feel like it took away a whole lot of... of the things I like about more abstract lyrics. Um, I felt like there's still room for interpretation, there's still room for poetry, um, but, um, but I felt like it was, it, it really taught me a lot. It made me feel like it's kind of a cop-out sometimes to just be inscrutable, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I, I, I try not to do that, but I'm sure I have. When a song is finished, and it has its final coat of paint, it makes me sad. I mourn all the choices I didn't make. 
I can still hear the overdubs that I didn't add, the notes that were left out, the guitar parts that are just all wrong. That's when I realise I've ruined it. That's not false modesty. Any song that ever originated in a person's imagination and was translated into notes and words is inherently inferior to its potential. When a song is rattling around my subconscious, it's still limitless, which means I haven't found a way to fuck it up yet. Once a song goes out into the world, that's when it really gets ruined. <laughs> Other people get to listen to it and they make it worse by misreading intentions and judging and weighing in with opinions. I'm right there with them. Not just my songs, but all songs. People ruin everything. My songs are never as good as they were in my head when they had limitless forms and belonged only to me. It's a leap of faith and time to share them. And I do it willingly, because if I held on to my songs, I'd eventually be the one to break the spell, and I'd be the one ruining them. And that's the only thing I can think of that would be worse than other people's opinions. <laughs> I should have had you read my book. I, I'd love to read your book, man. I've read it twice now. It's really good. It's, it's a good read. Um, that must be devastatingly sad for you. <laughs> Oh, I, I don't think so. I think it's really, it's really, it's really honest. And I, I've had to really, um, I've had to weigh what, why I write so many songs, why it, what, what part of it really helps me. And uh, when, a, when I really mean that, when a song is finished, it's actually kind of stopped being anything other than hopefully a song I can put into my set and, and, and people will enjoy it and I can, I, can ha I can have some connection with other people. That's really valuable and I, and I love that that happens. But when I'm writing a song is when I disappear and that's the most valuable part of it to me is to, to, ha to have these moments where you're liberated, you've been you know, unshackled from the burden of, of self and I think all creative endeavors kind of aim towards that goal um, of, of, you know, to be a little bit flippant about it. I think it's like killing time without hurting anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you can, you know, just kind of feel like, I can't believe that the, usually the clock moves so slow. And now it's four hours later and now all I've been doing is writing this song. And, and I, I live for that. That's the part that's the most, um, uh, the most satisfying for me. And, and the part you're most interested in exploring and being in that place, I assume. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, early, I, really, I really worry about people that think that they can control how people perceive their music or their art after it's out into the world. Mm. There's really, you, you don't play hardly any role in it anymore, and it just drives people crazy that they can't, ex, you know, tell people exactly what to think about their, their art. You mean you've never wanted to correct a reviewer? Oh, I would, no, don't take, don't, don't take criticism from someone you wouldn't ask for advice, you know? Like, Fair enough. Good call, man, good call. <laughs> Actually, that, that, that... I mean, but they're all wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even, the, even the positive ones. I'm just like, oh my, you're... Um, listen, to some, listen to some records. Yeah. You, you, um, you reference a, a piece of mu music journalism in here by Lester Bangs, 
mm-hmm. about The Clash, which I've just gone and read for the first time. I'm halfway through it. What an incredible piece of music writing, huh? Oh, it's, it's, it's insane. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about you discovering music for yourself, and you write about it a lot in the book, discovering records, going to record stores, reading magazines, and that journey of discovery for you, the fact that punk rock was like a code word between, between teenagers you, you didn't know. That's not a world that exists now. I would imagine it's quite romantic in your mind. Oh, I think, I think it's better now. Actually, there, there is some romance to it, but I think it's better that there aren't lines in the sand. When, when I was growing up, it was really stupid to me that there were lines in the sand between punk rockers and, and the kids that liked heavy metal, or there was like, that the, we were using music as, a, as a, a way to form a consumer identity. You know, that's really what we were doing. And on, in some ways, it had that, that, that intoxicating feeling of belonging to something that everybody kind of longs for and wishes they had. But on another level, it was, it was really small-minded and, and, and simple to shun people and shun other music because it didn't fit. It's fascism, you know? It's, it's like, it's really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's... it's- People, people like to wear their, their musical tastes like a badge of honor, right? I, well, I don't know if they do as much anymore. My kids, they don't have that. All music of all eras is happening all at once because of the internet. There is no, mm. um, you, you, don't, you can't hang out with this because you listen to this. They don't have friends like that. Mm. Um, I mean, they generally have friends that like a lot of music. So they share that, but they, um, we went to see the Justin Bieber movie together when they were little, because they were really into Justin Bieber, but they also listened to Captain Beefheart on the way to school in the morning, you know, and it was like, I thought that was, like, I thought that was evolved, evolved. Yeah. Bieber and Beefheart. Captain Bieber. <laughs> You're uh, Captain Bieber, there you are. You're bringing up your kids well. I, I, you write beautifully about your, um, the band that you're in with your kids. Um, and, <laughs> the raccoonists. And, and, and how much you love, you love them. I'm just going to read this uh, paragraph about parenting, which I, I really took to. I don't believe that your kids should look at you as infallible. They should be able to see you as a person who is struggling and persevering. They have pretty well-tuned bullshit detectors, kids. I've said to Spencer and Sammy more than a few times, listen guys, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. What do you guys think? (laughs) You can never go wrong with asking questions. Well, maybe you could if you had an especially devious kid who knows how to manipulate you, but even then, if you ask enough questions, you'll eventually get to the right place. It's my same strategy when arguing with somebody about politics. You can't just tell somebody they're wrong. They have to arrive at that conclusion on their own, or it's never going to happen. So I keep asking questions, not in a confrontational way, but with sincere curiosity. Give people enough rope, and they'll hang themselves. They'll eventually realise they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. (laughs) It's Um, true. (laughs) Um, It works. Yeah, I've, I feel like you're, the way you speak about your family, you, your kids are teaching you as much as you, you're teaching them, or that's how you seem to be approaching it. I think that's healthy. Yeah, I think that, my, I mean, I don't know, my, I'm really fortunate that I, 
I married well. I mean, my wife is is a you know visionary parent. I think she she really intuited or knew um, what was best for the kids way before. I was able to contemplate it in ways like, I would have loved for everybody to be on the road with me all of the time. But she was like, no, they need to have friends. You know, mm -hmm. they should have friends. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's a, that's a good idea, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably better for a kid. Um, you know, not sleeping in a different bed every night. Or, right. You know. Um, and so I learned a lot from her too. Uh, and, but I think both of us were pretty intuitively tuned into the idea that they were people the second they were born, and we were most responsible for reacting to who they were and allowing them, hopefully not messing that up for them, mm. allowing them to become the person that they are instead of what I think a lot of parents believe is that their job is to form a person, and I think that that's a really bad idea. <laughs> Would you and I be sitting here having this conversation if you hadn't married well? I don't think so. I, I mean, um, I think it's really possible I would be like a, a drug casualty, a, a, a rock and roll cliche, possibly. Yeah, because, you know, um, she would have had every reason or every, you know, she could have kicked me out and it would have been understandable for a, for a large part of our relationship early on. And the fact that she didn't has, is a testament to her strength and her affection for me. Um, but it definitely uh, would have been much, much harder for me to get healthy if I didn't have this incredible stability, which would be my wife. There are a couple of sections where you just allow direct conversations between you and your wife to be printed in the book, <laughs> and some very revealing, difficult things come yeah. out um, because of that. I just, uh, she's, she seems like such an incredible woman. It was a very wise choice for you. You were, you were in your early 20s, hey? I was, yeah, I mean, um, my wife is 10 years older than I am, and I think... Shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that means respect in oh, New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. I intuited that. I yeah, didn't, yeah. I, I, it's all tone. It's all tone. <laughs> she, um, yeah, she was the most adult person that I'd ever met in, in, in a lot of ways, but she's also incredibly childlike and hilarious and, and, and fun-loving and, and, you know, crazy. And um, so I don't know. I, some part of me that is, has an instinct for survival did some calculus at some point <laughs> early on and said, no, I think that, that, would, that would probably be the best option for you. Do you, do you tend to be intuition-led? Do you sometimes make decisions without fully being cognizant of why you're making them, but you're like, mm, I know this is the right thing to do? For example, like, hey, let's just release this album on the internet. You know, or, you know, decisions career or personal. Um, do you trust <clears throat> that in a voice? 
I do. I don't know if, if it's always into intuition. I just I think that there are there are times where I'm I'm pretty comfortable challenging. Uh, you know, like, why do we have to do interviews for three months before we put a record out and, and act as if we're, like, releasing some, you know, world-changing piece of art? Why can't we just give it away? Just tell people it's out there and have it be... You know, just... I was at a moment when we gave Star Wars away. <laughs> we put out a record called Star Wars, by the way. Um, I don't know if everybody knew that, but I'm pretty proud a of that. A couple did. Yeah. That's the Star Wars that you're familiar with, by the way. You, <laughs> part of naming your record Star Wars was because you wanted to get sued by George Lucas, though. There was a little bit of you that wanted I would wanted have been the most sued. fun thing in the world to be yeah, sued exactly. by Disney <laughs> or whoever, you know. Uh, they didn't take the bait. I think that they're, they were on to us. Mm, mm. It wasn't we a had a cover... We had a different cover initially that was the McDonald's logo upside down for the Wilco W. Oh yeah, <clears throat> it had Ronald McDonald on it, and it and it was called Star Wars. Wow. And our lawyer said, "No, <laughs> you can't do that. You need a better lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna need no, a much he's better a great, lawyer." He's a, he, was, he made the right call, but. Uh, we did ask. We did ask for permission, and they said no. Right. So that just made it even more Do exciting it anyway. to put it. <laughs> are there are there World Trade Center conspiracies around Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and the fact that uh, tall buildings shake is in the Jesus etc. lyrics, and it was released on the same day as the Twin Towers coming down, and it got put out on the internet, and people like to talk about these things. Do you, do you know anything about that? <laughs> Oh, wow. Did you know this was going to happen? Hey, look, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's a wrap. Yeah. Um, well, the record didn't come out on, on September 11th. It was scheduled to come out on September 11th. That was our original release date. And the record was finished, and it had the cover that it, that it has. Mm. And, and then we got dropped. And so it never came out on that day. And then I guess it did come out shortly after 9-11, or actually we started allowing people to download it for free or stream, we started streaming it so we could go on tour well before we put Yankee Hotel Foxtrot out. So that started happening right after 9-11, like mm. we were in New York City on like September 21st or something like that, um, on tour playing Yankee Hotel Foxtrot for the first time. It was right after that, but, <clears throat> excuse me, People, when people's hearts are broken, I think they turn on the radio and every song is about them and about what they're going through. And I think that that happened with Yankee Hotel, Hotel Foxtrot for some people. Right after 9-11, there were enough things that were accurate or felt accurate that people started feeling like there was something prescient about it. But I don't... Uh, I think that there are way more things that make no sense. Yeah. They don't, they don't fit, fit at all. So that's just our, our bias confirmation probably. But, but yes, I did know it was going to happen and I, I had alerted. <laughs> Is that the weirdest conspiracy theory you've heard about your band or are there more? Because you do have a pretty, pretty dedicated 
fan base, people that would be looking for clues and words and Easter eggs behind every. I, I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't know. I, I only know about that one because it was in. It was on Cracked.com, and I, I read Cracked. And you're always on Cracked.com. <laughs> huh? I know it's funny. They put funny stuff up. I don't know. Um, I don't know of any others. Maybe somebody here, if there's... Any Wilco conspiracy Any Wilco theories? conspiracy theorists? Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, around that time, um, and you write about this in the book, um, around the time of, of making Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and there was the documentary crew. And, mm. and you write in the book about how this was meant to be a fly-in-the-wall documentary, and it was anything but, because <laughs> you can't ignore a camera being in the room. Right. And so I went back and I, I watched the documentary because you say to look out for one specific point mm. where you and Jay are having a fight mm. and then you look at the camera like this. As though you really... And you're like, I'm pretty sure we all look like idiots right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was so strange having like this... Ab this observing ego in the room, like being able to put on, put your, project yourself out of yourself and, and say, oh my God, what is that thing seeing? And it was nuts. It was just, uh, it, was, it just made everything really vividly clear that there was, there was so much more dysfunction than, I was, than what I was acknowledging. Because I, I watch that and I see a dysfunctional band, you know? Yeah, no, I had no idea <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Until, uh, until the cameras were around and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is stupid. Do you think, did that doco have a, a negative effect on, on the record or on the band or, or, or did, it, did it propel, you, you know, Jay, Jay left during that oh, time I, I and, think and you asked Jay to leave and, and those things happened? Did the documentary instigate some of that? Yeah, for sure. I wow. think I think being able to kind of look at look at the band with this, you know, being able to sort of see what other people were seeing, um, made made it clear that some things needed to change for the for the overall health of the band, for my overall health, for mm. for what what. Um, so I think there were mostly positive changes. The movie itself, I think Sam Jones uh, got really really lucky. He went to make a documentary about a band that not that many people knew about, and it ended up being really dramatic because we got dropped from our label and 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 the band kind of imploded. Mm. And and that record was enormous for you guys, like that. Yeah. Yeah, it ended and it ended up being the biggest record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to go into it too much here. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's kind of the right environment, but you speak a lot about addiction in here and and uh, addiction to painkillers and prescription drugs. Uh, you, you gave up drinking at the age of 23, which is remarkable, um, considering where you'd come from and the lifestyle you, you were I, living. I, I thought that as long, from my with my family history, I thought as long as I wasn't drinking, everything was going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. But that didn't stop. You know, I was still thinking that when I was taking opioids. Yeah. You know? But you referred to yourself as, as being in recovery just before, and you've been clean 15 years now? Yeah, just had a 15-year anniversary. Yeah. Are you... Uh, Thank you. 
will you always refer to yourself as being in recovery? Um, I don't. I bring it up occasionally, and I and I and I I say that, and it's I think it's truthful. I don't know if I I it's like a a pillar of my identity, right? Um, and I think that that's good. I don't want it to be like my only defining characteristic. I um, I don't think it's all. I also don't think it's a good idea to forget that, and I don't think it's a good idea to forget the pain of the things that I caused other, you know, the pain I caused other people and the pain that I caused myself is, is really helpful, that's really useful um, to be, to m remain in touch with. Because um, otherwise I don't know, I don't know what would stop you from taking drugs again if you weren't in touch with what, well, as what, you a, say what here, a drag giving, it was. Giving up's not hard, it's not starting again that's tricky. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the truth. Because <laughs> there's always another reason. There's always a reason to turn around and take yourself out of it. Yeah, except that for me, uh, it doesn't sound fun because uh, in, in the hospital, we'd have these group therapy sessions 15 years ago, and it's still vivid to me because it was such a transformative period. And one of the things people would talk about is how you got to play that tape. You got to play that tape. And you, and it, it really does feel like that. You have one little moment where my wife's, um, my wife's been treated for cancer in, in for the last five years. So there have been painkillers in the house off and on for a lot of that period of, of time. And my wife trusts me to go pick up her pain medication now, which is remarkable. Um, but also, you know, it's occasionally they're, they're just sitting there and you'll have this thought like, well, that used to be really fun. And then you immediately go to vomiting and, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, shaking on, on the floor. And you know, like it, it, it just comes rushing back how horrible it was. Your dealer seemed like a really good guy, though. Eh? He was—he was a—he was, was a fan, huh? He was a fan. Yeah. That's, that's how you got some of your best hookups. Yeah. I, I, I was really I thrilled a, with that story. <laughs> we had to reason. really go through the legal department at, at, uh, at the publisher I to bet. figure out what, what to do about that. There was a kid that worked at the 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 big national pharmacy in the United States, Walgreens, mm. uh, and he would double and triple my prescriptions, and then eventually he just started giving me baggies full of painkillers. And, and this, is a, this is why it's such a huge problem, even 15 years ago in the United States. I'd ask him, aren't you gonna get in trouble? Aren't they gonna miss these? This is like 200 pills. And he'd say, this one store sells 250,000 of these a week. And, I'm, and I'm, he's not kidding. They're not gonna miss 200 pills. So that was, that was, and that was 15 years ago. Wow. Sorry, that, that, <laughs> that just blows my mind. The opioid crisis is in a, it's in, and it's way worse now, huh? It's way worse now from what I understand. Yeah, there's one, one little town in Kentucky, I think, that, that 
they had prescribed over nine million pills in yeah, the okay. in the past five years for a town of five hundred. Something's fishy, right? Something's wrong. Right? Yeah. Um, that's the most frustrating thing about the opioid crisis to me is that it's unlike a lot of other, uh, you know, battles to control drug abuse, there is actually something you could really do. Mm. There's, there, A, you could give everybody health care because it's a health issue. And what, are you, <clears throat> what a strange concept. <laughs> I mean, that would help with all, all types of addiction, but, mm. but also just the, the, they used to be a lot, there used to be a lot better cap on the amount of painkillers that were, they were able to manufacture. Mm. And at some point, the, the pharmaceutical lobby got those caps removed. And so Americans have 12 times as much pain as they did 20 years ago, apparently. Well, there may be reasons for that. <laughs> well, there has been in the last few years, yes. <laughs> um, congratulations on being clean and staying clean. Jeff, oh, thank it's you. A huge, it's a huge accomplishment. Um, and also, congratulations on this book, and thank you for sharing this book. I, I came out of this feeling victorious because I felt like you... Um, you'd survived against the odds. Oh, thank you. Not just through, you know, whether it was addiction that was going to get you here or depression or anxiety, but, you know, with, with your... Um, uh, <laughs> you like old strings on your guitar and with your voice that you don't feel sustains <laughs> particularly well uh, and self-taught, you've... You've forged a beautiful, beautiful career for yourself. You've, you've written some amazing songs. You've touched thousands, if not millions, of lives. And um, just congratulations, man. This is, thank you. This has been really good for me. Good. <laughs> I appreciate I it. So. <clears throat> I want to... Um, it's not, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. I'm serious. I was, I was really touched by the book. A lot, of, a lot of things that you spoke about within yourself particularly about insecurity and confidence and anxiety, they rang true for me. Not that mm -hmm. I write songs, not that I do any mm -hmm. of those th sorts of things, but very, very, um, yeah, yeah, very, very, very well, human. When, I, when we met just a little while ago, I noticed that you have on your hand the phrase, this too shall pass. Tattooed, yeah. And it, I felt it was really... Um, it reminded me of a story, if you don't mind, I'll tell. Please. I was, after I got out of the hospital, the recommendation, and I was going to take every recommendation given to me because I wanted to be healthy. I did not want to be the way that I was. And they recommended to me that I go live in a halfway house to re-enter the world. And, and on one level, it made no sense to me because a lot of the people that they recommend that to don't have a safe environment to go back to. And I was, I had a wife and two kids and a pretty safe environment really. But, but I did it because I thought that's, I'm gonna do what they asked me to do. And it was really, really hard living away from my family in a halfway house. And it was scary, <laughs> it, was, it was really intense. And one of the, um, 
one of the nights that I was living there, I really couldn't sleep. I was having really bad anxiety still. And, and one, of the, one of my roommates came to console me, and he said, and he said, I don't really know what to say. This too, this too shall pass or some shit. <laughs> I, I couldn't fit all of that on my hand. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I had the whole phrase, but I just so it has a, it has a in. real special place in my heart. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, so thank you, everybody, and thank you, Jeff. Cheers, thank man. you. Thank really you so much. It. Cool. Thank you. Can you hear me? Break your heart. Mm-hmm. 
write a, I wrote this song about uh, going to say goodbye to my dad a few summers ago. a song that I recorded here in New Zealand. We recorded a lot of Wilco the album here at Roundhead with uh, 
when we were working on the Seven Worlds Collide record with Neil Finn. I don't know if everybody knows that, but we made most of that record here in this town. And this is maybe one of the only Wilco songs that could be appropriate for a wedding. strangers however close we get sometimes it's like we never met but you and I I think we can take it all the good with the bad make something that no one else has but you and I What can we do when the words we use sometimes are misconstrued? Oh, I won't guess what's coming next. I can never tell you the deepest well I've ever fallen into. Take it All the good with the bad Make something that no one else has But you and I another song that I wrote for my wife. This isn't probably a, one of the more well-known songs that I've written, but I want to play it for you. My wife hates this song. She, um, the first time I played it for her, she liked it. And the lyrics in the first verse were, uh, what? No, I'm going to tell you what they are. Just hang on a second. I 
Are you done? <laughs> so the initial first verse was, we've been through a lot, me and you, hospitals and bars. I know how it hurts. I'm a piece of work, but you're a work of art. Right? That was really nice, right? All right. I changed it. We've been through a lot, me and you, hospitals and bars. I know how it hurts. I'm a piece of work, but you know, walk in the park. That's a good place to start. When things go wrong, our love gets stronger. A normal heart is a shopping cart left by the side of the road. Maybe I'm naive, is it up to me? Whether I'm alive or alone Oh, I'd love to know Why things go wrong And our love is stronger each day And our love is stronger that way Tragedy is guaranteed podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.